Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The year is 553 before our common era. An allied Carthaginian and Etruscan fleet of 120 ships attacked the defending 60 pentacotters of the Phocaeans. Pentacotter is a ship with 48 oars and two rudders for steering. The wealthy trading port town of Alalia in the east coast of Corsica was the prize. The pretext, the theft of a couple of fishing boats. The main reason perhaps to prevent the Greeks from entering the Atlantic Ocean and thus the lucrative coastal markets where the Carthaginians exercised control for the past 150 years before the battle. The defending Ionian Greeks, after they've lived on the island of Corsica for five years in the trading post of Alalia, in an uneasy peace with their neighbours, finally had to resort to an all-out war. A naval battle ensued. Although the Phocian Greeks were victorious, and as Herodotus informs us, it was a Cadmian victory, which of course is an older version of our, what we call, Pyrrhic victory, they've lost two-thirds of their ships and couldn't defend their colony anymore. They had to go. They fled again, and they fled this hostile territory of the Western Mediterranean, of Corsica, initially to Rigion, and subsequently to Inotria, in the lower Italy, in the boot, where they founded a new settlement which they named Haili, and later that known as Elea, and in the Roman times as Velia. Some other colonists, being homesick, managed to return to their mother city Phocaea in Anatolia, in Asia Minor. Some others finally managed to reach another place, where roughly 50 years earlier, some compatriots of theirs established an emporion settlement, and very soon after, a successful colony city. This is the Delicious Legacy Podcast, and I'm Thomas Dinas. Welcome back to another episode. And for today's story, let's rewind back a little bit before the Battle of Alalia and Corsica, and let's find the origins, or at least some starting point, 
for our ancient adventure. Let's go back 12 years from before the battle and let's move our focus to what is today Asia Minor, the Anatolia of the ancient world, a place with powerful kingdoms like the Lydians um, and the Lycians, the ancient Greek cities of Ionia, Miletus and Ephesus, and of course Phocaea, which is uh, the center of our story today. Our story starts with the Lydians, another powerful kingdom centered on the south, southeast of modern Turkey and central parts of it, of course. And the Lydians were um, one of the main powers of the area back then. And they're famous for the king Croesus, the king that became synonymous with uh, wealth and gold. And he was the last uh, king that participated on the downfall of the glorious Lydian Empire in 547 before our common era. The Lydian king Croesus was outsmarted by Cyrus the Great and in the winter he was besieged in his magnificent capital, the legendary Sardis. Before the last battle was to begin, the general Harpagus advised Cyrus to place his uh, camels in front of the warriors. The Lydian horses, not used to the camel's smell, would be very afraid. And indeed, the Lydian cavalry becomes useless and the Persians won the battle. The pacification of Lydia was left to a Persian satrap named Tabalus, who was to subdue the Greek towns on the boards of the Aegean Sea that once belonged to the Lydian Empire. The task of sending Croesus' treasury to Persia was entrusted to a Lydian named Pactias. As soon as Cyrus has gone home, Pactias induced the Lydians to revolt. And, using the money, hired mercenaries in the Greek towns and started to besiege Sardis. Cyrus sent a Mede named Mazaris to reconquer Lydia. But this general died soon after he had liberated Sardis and taken the Greek towns Priene and Magnesia. Harpagus took the command. In 546 BC, however, he captured Sardis and soon after devastated most of the cities of West Asia Minor, including Phocaea. He marched to the other Greek towns, which he attacked by means of earthworks, something that the Greeks have never seen before. After he took Phocaea and Teos and then moved to the south, where he subdued the Carians, the Lycians and their cities Xanthus. Later, Harpagus went north, where he captured several other Greek towns. It seems that he concluded his campaigns in 542 BCE. This was the age of Cyrus the Great, the founder of the first Persian Empire, a truly multicultural empire. But what happened to the Phocians? Many of the inhabitants of Phocia emigrated to their Mediterranean colonies. Although some of them seemed to have returned, there was no revival of the golden age of the first half of the 6th century. Phocaea itself was located near the mouth of the river Hermus, now Gediz, the second longest river in Anatolia, flowing into the Aegean Sea. From its source in Mount Murat in Kutahia province, 
it flows generally west for 400 kilometers and situated on the coast of the peninsula, separating the Gulf of Kimi to the north, named for the largest of the Aeolian cities, and the Gulf of Smyrna, now Izmir, to the south. Phokea had two natural harbors within close range of the settlement, both containing a number of small islands. Phokea's harbors allowed it to develop a thriving seafaring economy and to become a great naval power, which greatly influenced its culture. According to Herodotus, the Phokeans were fearsome mariners and navigators, the first Greeks to make long sea voyages, having discovered and sailed past the coast of Adriatic, Tyrrhenia and Spain. Herodotus relates that they so impressed Argantonios, the king of Tartessus in Spain, that he invited them to settle there, and, when they declined, gave them a great sum of money to build a wall around their city. Their sea travels were extensive. To the south, they probably conducted trade with the Greek uh, colony of Naucratis in Egypt, which was the colony of the fellow Ionian city of Miletus. To the north, they probably helped uh, settle Amisos, now Samson in the Black Sea, and Lampsacus at the north end of the Hellespont. However, Phokian's major colonies were to the west. This included Alalia and Corsica, which we've seen in the beginning of our story and how that adventure has ended. Emporiae and Roda in Spain, and especially Massalia, Marseille nowadays in France. Perhaps the most famous city and colony of ancient Greeks in Western Europe to this day. Why am I saying all these things? Why am I talking about Marseille and the Greek colonies of the Western Mediterranean so much? Well, the place is full of flavorful recipes, delicious fresh produce, and the olives and the olive oil of Provence and the wines, they were transferred there by the ancient Greek colonists. And we will see many, many delicious recipes now. Recipes and foods that go back all the way and we can trace the lineage to ancient Greece. Without exaggeration, I'm not uh, trying to overstate the importance of the ancient Greeks in uh, <laughs> south of France. The huge port city of Marseille, or Massalia, in the south of France, was founded by Greeks back in 600 BCE, when the first immigrants arrived in the area and established a trading colony. Marseille lies in a sheltered depression surrounded by hills. The old port is a natural harbour and one of the most westerly of the inlets along a rocky coastline, which is a characteristic of the northeastern Mediterranean. Further west, beyond the large tidal lake called the Bear Lagoon, the Tang de Bear, the shoreline flattens out. There, the sandy dunes of the Gulf of Foz and the Camargue region in their own delta were less attractive to early mariners. But because the river has been a trade route since prehistoric times, helping to link northern Europe to the Mediterranean Sea, the Phokian Greeks saw the opportunity to build a city as close to this link as possible. Rhone, though not the longest, is the fastest and most powerful river in France, 
an average of 1,800 square meters per second of water pours into the Mediterranean at its delta. The word Rhone comes from the Latin Rodanus, which itself comes from the ancient Greek Rodanos, the Greek rendering of the Gaulish uh, name of the river, as heard by the Greeks living in the colony of Marseille. The Celtic name of the river, Rodo or Roto, literally means that which rolls or that which runs. And it was a frequent name of rivers among the Celts. The river rises near the Rhone Glacier in Valais, Switzerland, in the St. Gothard Massif, at an altitude of 1,753 meters. It turns northwest to leave the Alps and then flows west through Lake Geneva before entering France. At Arles, the Rhone divides into two arms with all branches flowing into the Mediterranean Sea. One arm is called the Grand Rhone and the other one is called Petit Rhone. Between them and the sea is the River Delta, known as the Camargue home to a unique range of wildlife, including Camargue bulls and Camargue horses. The Rhone Valley is responsible for funneling the famous Mistral wind into the Camargue and Provence, lesser winds travelling the same route and drying any precipitation are responsible for the conditions favourable for winemaking. Today, Marseille is the second largest city in France and definitely among the oldest in Europe. The Greek philosopher Aristotle informs us about the myth concerning the foundation of Massalia. According to this tale, Protis, the son of Efxenus from Phokia, married Gyptis, the daughter of a king of a Celt tribe named Segobrigius, who lived in Gaul, ancient France. When the Greek man married this rich and beautiful Celtic woman, the local king gave him the right to obtain a piece of land and build a town. This marriage, according to Aristotle always, was the beginning of the story of Marseille. The story, however, of Protis and Kiptis would take a dark twist. After the king's death, his son and heir thought that the city was a danger to his ambitions, so it needed to be silenced. The plan was to sneak into the city at night, killing its inhabitants. However, the plot was spoiled when a relative of the king, who had fallen in love with a young Greek woman, divulged the plan. The participating Ligurians, the young king and 7,000 of his followers, were all killed. So this small settlement, uh, which Aristotle tells us this myth, was the foundation of what was to become this well-known city of Marseille. So these first Greek settlers uh, there, in the port city, very soon established a wide network of trade relationships, with neighboring cities, not only along the coast, but into the French mainland areas as well, where various Celtic tribes uh, once lived. The city of Massalia itself located on three hills overlooking the harbour and would become one of the first ports in the Western Europe and the centre of maritime trade. Within a protected by a defensive wall area of 125 acres lived a population of some 50,000 people governed by a constitution by an oligarchic republic. The outward-looking and trade-friendly attitude of the Greeks of Marseille developed and offered their city the opportunity to expand economically and as a consequence to thrive and prosper. Shipments of Greek produce constantly arrived at the region's ports and ancient Gaul was able to form a consistent, well-established network of communications 
and relations with the metropolitan areas of Greece via their colonies, especially Marseille. Additionally, the northern markets of Europe could be reached via inland routes along rivers and streams that connected the Mediterranean with the Atlantic in the north. This concentration around the mouth of Rhone facilitated the Greek trade of tin without the need to engage the Carthaginian-controlled maritime traffic of the Straits of the Pillars of Hercules. During the following centuries, the people of Marseille continued to trade with the entire Mediterranean region, and the port grew in importance and size. The influence across northern and western Europe became more evident with the arrival of Greek wine and olives as agricultural products which were traded far and wide. Consequently, a great deal of pottery, artwork, coins and other objects from that period have been discovered all over France, from the southern to the very northern extremes of the country. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This active engagement with the entire region of Col made the Masaliotes the unchallenged masters of trade of the time. Greek coinage was circulating across France. Local Celtic tribes were using Greek themes to make their own coins, and the whole region was heavily influenced by the Greek settlers' uh, soft power of commerce and trade. Alongside Massalia, other towns like Olbia, Antipolis and Nikia, modern-day Nice, were Greek, uh, Greek settlements, and all had fertile hinterlands, producing wine and fruit, Alongside aromatic herbs, which you can still gather upland of uh, the markets of Nice and uh, Provence, the wine production of this coastal strip was a significant part of the economy and one of the activities that lends itself well to our investigation. 
Many amphorae have survived and have been examined. The Massaliotes' influence even reached the shores of Britain, where local coins discovered in Kent and in Surrey and have depictions of the god Apollo. These coins are believed to have been influenced by the designs used in Marseille. Massalia's prosperity was based on its ability to control the trade, as we've seen, around the shores of, of the northern half of the Western Mediterranean and from these coastal regions into the, to the so-called barbarian hinterlands and beyond. Westward from Massalia, across the Gulf of Lyon, lay Emporion, which is the modern city of Ampurias in Spain. This again was probably founded by Phocians 30 years after Massalia, so it provided a convenient first stopping point on the trade route that led down the Spanish coast toward the lucrative metal resources of southern Iberia. These were largely under control of the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians. A fortified Greek trading post was built at uh, Santa Pola near the mouth of, of the river Segura. This was a carefully chosen location because the Segura Valley provided a major route westward to the upper reaches of Guadalquivir Valley, along the north flank of which lay the silver-rich Sierra Morena with the silver and copper resources of the mythical city of Tartessos, which was uh, farther west. So all in all, Masalia prospered for many hundreds of years. Until, of course, all good things must end with uh, a Roman invasion and subjugation. While maintaining its independence, the city aided Rome uh, through the provision of ships during the Second Punic War against the Carthage, which uh, lasted from 218 to 202 BCE. This loyalty to Rome would soon reap benefits. In 125 BCE, when the tribe of Seluvi from southern Gaul threatened the independence and safety of Massalia, the city successfully appealed to Rome for assistance. Afterwards, the city served as a link between Gaul and their desire for Roman goods, particularly wine, and Rome's needs for resources and slaves. Although the city continued to have ties with the Republic, it was still able to maintain its oligarchic form of government, complete with an assembly of 600 who elected 15 magistrates, three of whom had executive power. This independence, though, soon would come to an abrupt end. In 49 BCE, the city made the mistake of supporting Pompey in his battle against Julius Caesar. As Caesar marched to Spain, the people of Massalia closed the city gates to Julius Caesar and prepared for siege. Leaving three legions to continue an assault upon the city, Caesar continued to Spain. After a constant barrage with siege towers, siege ramps and battering rams, the city soon surrendered and subsequently fell to Caesar's lieutenant Trebonius in 49 BCE. Although stripped of its dependencies, it was permitted to retain its status as a free city in recognition of past services. For a period, uh, the, the statesman Titus Annius Milo lived in exile in Marseille and... Um, he joked that no one could miss Rome as long as they could eat the delicious red mallet from Marseille. And he particularly thanked uh, Cicero for his uh, weak defense when he was put on trial. And so he could uh, be exiled in Marseille and uh, enjoy <laughs> the local fish. Anyway, <laughs> moving on from, uh, from the Romans, Marseille is particularly subject to the dry, cold, northwest wind known as Mistral, as we've seen earlier on 
which blows down their own valley, and at times at considerable force. So this may be the reason that Alexander Dumas, walking the streets of Marseille, while he was planning his novel The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, says in his Dictionnaire de Cuisine that the air of Provence is impregnated with the scent of garlic, which make it very healthy to breathe. According to Strabo, in Provence, olives were brought to Massalia by the Phocians, along with the first vine stalks. The vine and the olive tree, says author Gaston Rampert, are synonymous with civilization. Well, at least the Greek civilization. <laughs> the Massalians introduced the olive tree to the appreciative Ligurians, who soon anticipated Virgil in discovering that olives require no cultivation and have no use of the sickle knife or the stiff tooth rake. Once they dug themselves into the fields and stood up to winds, earth herself by the crooked plough led bare, provide moisture enough for the plants and a heavy crop from the ploughshare. Thus shall you breed the rich olive beloved of peace. It is almost certain that the first vineyards in France were on the hillsides of Palette, sheltered from the Mistral by Mont Saint-Victoire, near and out of reach of the arrows of the Sally tribesmen of Entremont. The Palette vineyards still make a delicious rosé, but many parts of the region claim the honour of having the oldest wine-growing tradition of all, notably Bandol. Ausonius, a Roman poet and teacher of rhetoric from Burdigala in Aquitaine, which is the modern city of Bordeaux, divides gold geographically and, rather whismically, according to the quality of its oysters. So first of all, there are the oysters of Medot, the writer's own country. Next are the oysters of Provence, including Marseille, the Etang de Bear and Port Vendus. This whole area of Provence and Marseille and Nice and all that, they have a rich tradition of delicious fresh fish and uh, recipes, which um, they do have a connection with ancient Greece. Today's episode, it comes with the welcome support of Malby and Greek, the number one delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce from all the wild corners of Greece and with products from small artisanal producers. So why not try today some of the Malbin Greek's amazing early harvest extra virgin olive oil, their own one, which I find fantastically delicious, and um, some six-month barrel-aged feta cheese from uh, Costarellos, and uh, some of the double-baked barley rusts from Kithira, and of course the wild Cretan oregano. Very few ingredients, very simple ingredients, but together the combination is exquisite. So what I do is take a barley rusk, put a bit of feta cheese, drizzle with a bit of olive oil, and I sprinkle it with a bit of oregano, and this is simple yet super delicious starter for anyone. Anyone will eat it and enjoy it. This is something I swear by. Try it and you won't regret it. Malbin Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. You can buy the exquisite goods online at malbiandgreek.com or if you go to the shop in Bermondsey, Lucy Way. And of course, for you, dear listeners, there is a 15% discount if you buy online with the code DELICIOUS. Enjoy! Some of you, you might have heard the Sardanado dish from Nice in um, South France, in modern South France today, in Provence. But um, this place, this city, this famous glamour city, was a colony of the Phocians too, the ancient Greek colonists we've seen earlier. And this dish traces its um, roots all the way back to them. 
and we have we have a kestratus and a poem of his to thank for that. And this is a recipe of uh, fried small fish in the form of pancake. All when you fry them all together and they become like one uh, stick together with a flour and everything. What they call nowadays, I uh, think, it's called crispo, like a crispy pancake made of small fish. The recipe instructs us to rinse the small fish, drain them, salt them, and pass them in the flour. Heat the oil in a skillet. Store the fish very tightly in it. Cook over high heat and shake the pan occasionally to prevent them from sticking. When the underside is golden brown, turn them over like a pancake with two spatulas. Brown the other side, then slip this into a hot dish. Sprinkle with vinegar that you have heated for a few moments in the pan. The famous ancient Greek gourmand Archestratus says, Use all anchovies for manure, except the Attic fish, I mean that useful seed, which the Ionians do call them foam, and take it fresh, just caught within the base, the sacred base of beautiful Phalerum. Good is it too, when by the secret isle of Rhodes you eat it, if it's not imported, and if you wish to taste it in perfection, boil nettles with it, nettles whose green leaves on both sides crown the stem. Put this in the dish, around the fish, then fry them in one pan, and mix in fragrant herbs well steeped in oil. So that's the ancient version of Sardanadum uh, from Archestratus, in the form of uh, prose. Today, in Marseille and generally in the south of France, with their fish soup, they eat something called rouille, and um, this is a classic Provençal sauce, right? Which usually incorporates bread, garlic, egg yolks, spices, and olive oil. So, so this is a, the modern version. But there was an ancient version from Marseille called mitotos, which is a sauce from the 5th century BCE and made from leeks, garlic, cheese, olive oil, and eggs. And this, this is so, to my mind, so much connected to Rui. It's, it's incredible the way that both things, they seem to be connected. And that was eaten with uh, the fishermen's uh, stews and soups of the antiquity, this uh, mitotos uh, sauce. And yeah, talking about uh, soups, what's more famous than the bouillabaisse uh, of uh, France, the most famous fish soup perhaps in the world. And originally this was a poor man's dish. And of course it evolved nowadays to become something more rich and luxurious in a way. Now check this uh, ancient recipe for a fish broth. This was found in a papyri, and uh, of course there are bits of it missing. So it's very... Um, we have to guess pieces of, of the recipe and, and put it back together. Okay, here we go. If you have pearl barley, coriander, also onion, dill and fine aniseed, mix them up. Cook the dish on coals by mixing it with a mixture of water, wine and fish broth. When it's cooked, and you want to take it away, sprinkle pepper, fig juice and hot vinegar over it. And you let it cook a little, but then you protect it from the fire. Some people pour vinegar on it and cook everything after adding the greens. Otherwise, they do as above. You see, soups and fish broths have a very long tradition in the Mediterranean. Both bouillabaisse and cacavia from Greece, they go all the way back to ancient times. And of course, um, now it's time to talk about bouillabaisse. This traditional Provençal fish stew, in its current form, originated in the 18th century uh, of our common era, of course, so about, give or take, 300 years before today, and apparently when it was first concocted by Marseillaise fishermen, 
who would prepare it using the leftovers from the daily catch, making the best of what they had uh, in their nets. Of course, one thing that makes uh, the Marseille's signature dish so distinctive is the vibrant orange color, as were all the flavors and the aromas uh, arising from the selection of uh, Provencal herbs and spices, especially saffron, fennel, and sometimes orange zest. Delicately infused with white wine and uh, sometimes with anise liquor, Bouillabaisse is traditionally served in two courses. The thick, rich soup is enjoyed with rouille sauce and uh, some garlic-wrapped croutons, while the fish and shellfish served separately. The Provençal Bouillabaisse starts with a good olive oil, onions, garlic, fennel, all available in ancient Greece, tomatoes, saffron and a bouquet garni. The other potential ingredients, leeks, potatoes, orange peel, pastis, as we said, the anise-flavored uh, liquor, even shellfish, are subject to a heated debate. Even the choice of fish is uh, disputed. Most local cooks insist on uh, rascas, which is a scorpion fish, but after that, everyone seems to have its own strong opinion. About the only common thing agreed upon is that the seafood must be Mediterranean. While some fishermen along the 40-mile stretch of the jagged coastline between Marseille and Toulon claim Bouillabaisse as a centuries-old creation of their Provençal predecessors, there are some more fanciful theories concerning its origins. Some, like Karnoski, the acclaimed prince of the gastronomes, once proposed that the angels carried the first Bouillabaisse from heaven down to nourish shipwrecked uh, sailors. Another myth has Venus, the goddess of love, preparing the soup for her husband to lull him to sleep so she could uh, uh, dally with Mars, her husband being the, the god Hephaestus, or Vulcan in uh, Roman mythology. The French author and poet Joseph Marie, on the other hand, assigned credit for the dish to the abbess of a convent in Marseille. And uh, G.A. Ortolan, in a book called La Légende et l'Histoire de la Bouillabaisse, published in 1891, says that it was invented by a provincial window who made a stew of everything she had in the kitchen to welcome home her long-lost son. It's fairly certain, however, whoever cooked the first bouillabaisse did so in a big pot over a hot fire, hence its name, which derives from the words bouillir, to boil, and abasser, to lower. All authentic bouillabaisse recipes call for the ingredients to be brought to a quick and rapid boil. This causes the oil, stock, and fish gelatin in the pot to emulsify into a rich, satisfying broth. The quality of the broth is essential to the dish if it is to be presented in the time-honored manner in two courses. First the soup, poured over the croutons, topped with rouille, then the fish, and if they included the recipe, potatoes. Usually the fish is a soft-fleshed varieties of uh, ras and uh, fork bird, which uh, would disintegrate during cooking and enrich the soup. And then the firmer ones, like the John Dory, conger eel, weaver, and of course rascas, which is a scorpion fish, all of which would be served whole. But in reality, all the fishermen and all the people from the Provence coastline say that you use what you're lucky enough to catch. A specialty of Aix and Provence, another region in near Marseille, is uh, calissons, which are diamond-shaped sweets made with almonds and candied melons, covered in icing. The tradition of combining almonds and candied fruits dates all the way back to ancient Greece and Roman times. While some texts from the 12th century, so over 800 years ago, mention Italian monks who made the cakes from almonds. 
And as the almonds became an important part of the city of Aikta Provence, they were combined with a cavallon melon to make these famous calissons. There is also an interesting tale about their invention taking place at the wedding feast of King René of Anjou in 1454. Another recipe of uh, the region, which uh, dates back to rich stews from Roman and Greek times, is the gardien de boeuf, which is uh, a traditional French dish uh, from the Camargue region. This dish is made with a combination of Camargue beef, which is uh, the local beef from uh, the Delta, garlic, onions, red wine, bay leaves, thyme, dried orange skin, vinegar, salt and pepper. So all these ingredients, apart from the orange skin, were in, uh, in ancient stews from Greece and Rome as well. The meat is cut into cubes and then it's marinated in a combination of chopped onions, red wine, vinegar, thyme, bay leaves and orange skin. On the next day, the marinade is strained and the meat is browned in olive oil. Then placed in earthenware casserole dish, which is deglazed with a strained marinade. The ingredients from the marinade are added to the dish with the chopped garlic above. The dish is simmered for a few hours until the vegetables become mushy and the sauce is thickened with grated dry bread. Guardian is served hot, ideally with Camargue rice on the side. In the past, the dish was prepared with bull meat and it was a staple of the local farmers. Talking about um, soups, fish soups, traditional and ancient fish soups, I've got another recipe from, uh, from Roman times with, for, uh, which calls for a red mallet soup, which is more like a soup stew type of thing. And the ingredients are red mallets, grapes, garum, dry white wine, honey, dried onions, spices, such as white pepper and lavage, and fresh herbs such as mint and oregano. I remember now with ancient recipes, we never really had um, exact quantities and a very vague method. So I'm going to give you the, the initial method, translated from Latin to English. Prepare in this way the red mallets. Gut and place them diligently in a pan. Add in the mortar, pepper, lavage, oregano, mint, dried onion. Pour one acetabalum of wine, one half acetabalum of garum, and one third acetabalum honey, and a spoon of the frutum. The liquid has to cover the fish, and during the cooking, a little broth has to remain. And this method, if we translate it in modern uh, instructions, and um, as I've done it, it goes like this. Grind in the mortar white pepper and lovage, adding a bit of dried onion. Mince the mint and oregano before pounding them with the spices. Squeeze the grapes to obtain the juice. Now mix in the mortar the grape juice, a bit of honey, garum and um, white dry wine. Gut and scale the red mullets, then place them in a pan covered with the liquid. If the broth is not enough, add a bit of water. Cook for about 10 minutes, adjusting the cooking time to the size of the fish you're using. Serve the red mullets with a fish broth. And that's it. That's the recipe. Thank you for listening to this episode and uh, thanks for sticking until the end with uh, the history of Marseille and finally you've seen why I've been I've been talking about Marseille so long I finally went into the recipes of the region. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode and um, the history of some uh, fish-related uh, recipes and other stuff. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, uh, please subscribe to Patreon to get the episodes early and ad-free with extra bonus content, which you're going to have uh, recipes, and um, like ancient recipes, and my own uh, modern takes on these ancient recipes, and other texts and um, articles. And of course, on every episode, there is a bonus section only for Patreon backers. So if you're listening to this on Acast, there's always something missing that you could have had it on Patreon. Thank you, and um, see you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.